The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Luke chapter 6. We are, we've been looking at the, the life of Jesus Christ as it's unfolded to us and by Luke in this book, this gospel, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 6. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, By the way, that wasn't a part of the law, that you couldn't rub wheat and... and, uh, eat the wheat as you walk through a field. That wasn't a part of the Sabbath law that God gave, but it was a part of the restrictions that the Pharisees had given. And so Jesus answers them, verse 3, and says to them, Have you not even read that da- what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, he was fleeing from Saul, if you remember, because Saul had threatened his life. And he stopped, and this is what he says, How he entered the house of God, and he took and ate the consecrated be- bread which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. There was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? Let's pray. Our Father, we desperately need for you to open our eyes and uh, tune our heart to you. We want you to manifest your, your presence among us by opening us up to you and to this glorious truth that you've called us into a rest. You've called us to rest in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts. Open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he says in verse 5. He uses that the title, Son of Man. Son of Man is his, the most common way he spoke about himself. That's the title right out of, out of Daniel chapter 7, which is a title of the one who is the king over the kingdom of God. He's given all authority to reign over all men for all times. And this is what Jesus called himself most often. Now, in this, this story that we have here in these 11 verses, it corresponds to two focal points of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Most of you know what the Sabbath is. It was, a regula- it was the fourth commandment of the ten. The fourth commandment of the ten. I should ask if you know the ten. But uh, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath commandment. It was the commandment that on the seventh day, which is Saturday, they would not labor at all. They would rest on that day. It was a rest that they were enter- to enter into. Now, in the Old Testament... This rest was based, this Sabbath rest was based on two different realities. The first was this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, 
God is giving them the reason why he's given the, the Sabbath commandment. He says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. He created everything in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And it says, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Sabbath was based upon God's power and authority, the creation. Because he exercised this power and this authority, and he rested, he calls his people to rest on the seventh day. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, the second basis of the of the Sabbath rest or the Sabbath commandment was this. You, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, because God delivered them from Egyptian slavery, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the second basis is God's mighty act of deliverance. He delivered them from Egyptian bondage. They were slaves in Egypt, and God delivers them, and he says, now I want you to rest on the seventh day. What is that? What's the big deal? Resting on the seventh day was an expression of their faith in God and his provision and his power and his goodness to them. They were the only nation on the face of the earth that rested on the seventh day. They, had, they were to have such confidence in their God that they could work six days and rest on the seventh day. Now, I have a lot of close friends who are workaholics, and uh, for them not to work seven days, they, they think they would never be able to make it in life. How could I possibly provide for myself and my family if I didn't labor seven days? Well, the children of Israel were supposed to trust God for his provision, because he had demonstrated himself able to provide for them, and so they were to rest. Well, what happens in this text in Luke chapter 6, what happens is Jesus declares the fact that we should rest because he is the Lord of the Sabbath in the first five verses, and he is the healer and life giver in verses 6 through 11. Let me talk to you about the significance of the Sabbath. We are not under the Sabbath. And Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. And the reason we meet on the first day of the week is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. But Israel, under the Old Covenant, was to rest on the seventh day to demonstrate to all the world, all the nations of the world, that their God provides for them. And they could trust him and they could rest and expect God to fulfill his promises to them. Now, the significance for the Sabbath for us is to, we are to remember that God's people were commanded to rest as an expression of their faith in God's power and provision. And if you stop and think about their situation, when God brought them into the promised land, go look on a map and look at Israel and see how God provided for them during their life in the promised land. It was ingenious. Of course, it was God, so... God manifested his wisdom. He brought a former rain, an early rain, in which the soil was softened and they could prepare the land and plant the seed. And then the latter rain God delivered would water the plants and there would be a great harvest. And so every time the harvest came in, it was an occasion for worshiping God because God was the one who provided for them. 
In fact, the day of Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest because they always saw the harvest as an expression of God's provision for them. You remember uh, Mark Twain when he talked about the weather, you know that little expression he had, he said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, God did something about it. And he blessed his people. And so he called them to rest on the seventh day, to do their labor for six days and rest on the seventh day as an expression of their faith in him. Now, I want to turn you back to uh, Hebrews chapter 4 that you heard this morning. If you'd go back there just a second. What you heard was this appeal by God to us in the new covenant that we should not be like Israel who failed to enter into the rest that God promised them. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, he's talking about, in fact, I, don't turn to Hebrews. Turn with me back to Numbers, what he's talking about, the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right before Deuteronomy. Numbers chapter 13. Here's the account of them failing to enter the rest. Now the rest, in other words, God says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to give you a land. And I want you to enter into the land and prosper there. And in this land, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give it to you. And I just want you to go in and occupy that land and trust me for all of your provisions. Let me give you this. Let me read this to you. Numbers. Let me get to Numbers. Numbers 13 is the, is the uh, event. Listen to this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they might spy out the land of Canaan. That's the promised land, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of your, their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. And then he goes on to list all the men that he sends into this land of Canaan to spy it out. And he says to them, verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, who was the representative back up in verse 8 of the tribe of Ephraim, he changes his name from Hosea to Joshua. And of course, Joshua becomes the name of the Messiah. It means the Lord's salvation. And you'll see why he changed his name in just a second. He goes on, he says, when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there to into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like. This is what God is giving them. He says, go see what it's really like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they open camps or with fortification? Are they walled cities? Are we going to have trouble going in and taking possession of this land? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? In other words, is it productive or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So he says, I want, to see, I want you to see what kind of crop there is there. So they went up, spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob and Lebo Hamath. When they had gone into the Negev, they came to Hebron. Shishai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. I'm sure that's not significant to you. 
I'm not going to try to explain it to you. Then they came to the valley of Eskol. And from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. A single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two men. You've seen pictures of this, I'm sure. Representations of this in different paintings. So they carry out this incredible produce and fruit and produce out of this land to show that this was a rich and fertile land, a fruitful land. That place was called the Valley of Esco because of the cluster. The word Esco means cluster of grapes, huge cluster of grapes, two, two men to carry, the sons that cut down from there. When they returned from spying the land at the end of 40 days, they were up there for 40 days spying out the land to see what this promised land was like that God had given them and told them to go in and, and inhabit it. They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They actually brought the fruit back and showed them this is what was growing there. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the giants in the land. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people. Caleb, one of the spies. And as you already know, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who brought back a good report because they trusted the promise of God. And they wanted to go into the land and rest in the land because God had provided it for them. So Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land though through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. They're huge, and they could easily defeat us. Now, you see what's going on? God made them a promise. And if they'd gone into the land and there were just some really small people there, just a few people there that they could easily go in and defeat in their own strength, and they wouldn't have to trust God, then they would have gladly gone in. He says, there's also, we saw the Nephilim, that are the giants, the sons of Anak, part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now get this, the reaction of the congregation. These are the people of God who had been promised this land. And God sent them out to occupy it, to take it, to enter into the land and rest in what God had promised them. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. <laughs> Would that we had not even come out of Egyptian bondage. If we were still slaves down in Egypt, at least they fed us every day. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. been better to die in the wilderness than to go in and face these enemies and have to trust God to defeat them. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? I read this and I thought, man, I've heard this so many times. 
I've probably said it too. People call and say, why is God allowing this? Why is he allowing my life to be so hard? Why are there so many obstacles for me to obey God? He says, our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? I don't think the Bogues over in uh, Dakar, you know who they are, Jesse and Heidi, I don't think they ever read this passage. They seem to think that God has called them and they can go in and rest in the land, even though it's, there's great evil there and great danger. Verse 4, so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Let's replace Moses and go back to Egypt and become slaves again. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly and the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They, they knew that God had called them to occupy the land, and so they are so disappointed in the people because of their lack of faith. They wouldn't go into the land and rest in the land that God was providing. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. How dare you tell us to do something that is going to harm us? Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. You can read the rest of the chapter for yourself. God showed up. You know what happens? The reason we get fearful about entering into the rest that God has promised us is it seems too dangerous because we have lost sight of God. You know, Job chapter 42, when God finally appears to Job, after all that Job's gone through, he's lost his family, he's gone through all these horrible things. And he's begun to defend himself because his friends are accusing him of sinning, and that's the reason he's had such a hard time. And then God shows up. And Job says, I've heard of you. It was something like, I've heard rumors about you in the past, but now I see you with my own eyes, and I repent in dust and ashes. He got on his face before God. You see, there is no enemy. There are no enemies, not Satan or any of his minions or anybody else who can even compare to the power and the provision of our mighty God. And that's what they had forgotten. They had forgotten that the God of heaven was the one who had ordered them, who had commanded them to go into the land and get their, take their rest in the land. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. God offered them rest, but they refused to enter into the rest. They refused to trust God. Now, there's a lot of things in life that we don't know what we ought to do. We don't, we don't have, the Bible doesn't tell us every move we're going to make, the step we should take, but it gives us all that we need to know to live in trust of Jesus Christ, how to rest in Christ. And the real problem is, will we trust him enough to do that? Will we walk by faith? Will we enter into the rest? That's what he's calling us to. Now, this, the significance of the Sabbath for us, according to Hebrews 4 is, because he, in Hebrews 4, he tells us that Christ is our Sabbath. 
If somebody asks you, are you, do you believe in the Sabbath? You should say, yes, he's wonderful. Jesus is our Sabbath. We rest in Christ. In fact, he uses a word that is used no place else in the Bible. And it means Sabbath rest. It means the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was simply a picture of the one who was going to come in whom we can rest, we can truly rest. What does that mean? We can rest in his work. I can rest in what Christ has done instead of attempting to do it myself. Instead of being able to accomplish what I need to accomplish in order for me to have a relationship with God, I can rest in the work of Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we should not be like the children of Israel when they came to the land of, to, and went up and spied out the land of Canaan, and they wouldn't believe God. And so they didn't enter the rest. Now you first entered the rest when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're called to live in that state of rest in Christ. That none of the works that we do are ever meant for me to do what Christ has already done. Can you imagine how foolish it would be for you to go to the cross and take your works and put them in a little box and lay them next to the cross and say, there's my contribution. I'm glad for what Jesus did. Now here's my contribution. Can you see how foolish that would be? Christ has done everything necessary to bring us into this relationship with God. He's the promised land. And we rest in him. We rest in Christ alone. So he, and for Hebrews 4, they had failed to enter God's promised rest when it was offered to them. And there's going to be people that you bring the gospel to, and they're going to fail to enter into the rest because it looks too scary to trust Christ alone. Religion is something different than the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ. Religion is, this is what I'm going to do to make sure that God is satisfied with me. (laughs) You can never do it. You have to come to rest in the work of Christ. And then, by the way, I just want to say this. It's obvious what you heard this morning from Vern, uh, that belief divorced from behavior does not qualify to be faith in a biblical sense. In other words, if you believe something, there will be behavior that manifests it. And so these people who had vowed trust in the living God who brought them out of Egyptian bondage didn't really trust him because they wouldn't obey him. They wouldn't enter into the land because it was too dangerous, they thought. Now the writer is encouraging these new covenant believers to take the same mistake not make the same mistake, but enter into this rest in Christ. And then secondly, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, you know this passage. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. What is he talking about? You need physical rest? No, he's not talking about physical rest. He's talking about resting in his work instead of trying to accomplish it yourself. If you're weary and heavy laden of religion and trying to please God through your works, he says, come and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am humble and meek, and and I'm meek and humble of heart. Jesus says to come to him and to rest, for my yoke is easy 
and my burden's light. <laughs> you see what you you know you've seen a picture of two ox being yoked together with a yoke and they pull a load. Well, guess what? If you get yoked up with Jesus, he does all the pulling. You just have to walk. You just have to walk with him because he does he, he does all the heavy lifting. And that's why his burden is light and his yoke is easy. So rest really is talking about faith. Faith. In fact, uh, John 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, Believe in me, rest in me, abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. That's an outlandish promise. We probably should blacken that out of the Bible. I mean, that's so radical. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you desire, and it will be given to you. And then he goes on to say, by this my Father is glorified when you prove to be my disciples. In other words, when your actions fit your profession and you actually live a life of faith in Christ, and so you've got enough faith to ask God to meet your needs, He says, God takes great delight in answering that. Now, we understand those two conditions, abiding in Christ and Christ's words abiding in you, mean something. They mean something. And it shapes our heart. The things I ask for reveals the fact that I'm abiding in Christ and Christ's words are abiding in me. But abiding is is just another word for rest. Resting in Christ This is what he's called us to do, and he is the one. He's the Lord of the Sabbath because he's the one that we trust, and he is our Sabbath. So Luke is telling this story story to Theophilus. That's who he addressed this book to, and it's come down to us. He's telling Theophilus and and telling us that we too can, can see that we can rest in Christ, not our abilities, not our works, not our merits, but the work of Christ. I I do want to say this. We want to be really clear about this, that good works are important, but they're not good works of merit. They are simply response in faith and gratitude to what God has already accomplished in us. Why do we do anything for God? Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And so we live in response to him, a response of gratitude, a response of joy. See, when you believe the gospel, Peter says that it fills your heart with joy. In fact, he he describes it this way, joy inexpressible and full of glory. (laughs) This is real joy when you're believing Christ. And when you are believing Christ, when you're abiding in Christ, that's believing Christ, that's trusting him. It fills your heart with joy, and so out of this joy, you gladly live a life of obedience to God and to Christ because he's your deliverer. Paul puts it this way. He says it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life means that it's an animating law. It's the commands of God that comes through the Spirit's ministry into your heart through the Word, and it actually energizes you to obey. It energizes you to obey. And so that's why we, there's no longer condemnation, any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, 
in this passage, he tells us, first of all, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath in verses 1 through 5. You see, the Mosaic regulations, if you notice back in in Luke 6, listen to this again. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. Uh, But his disciples were just picking heads of grain, and they were perfectly free to do this. In fact, the Word of God actually says if you're walking through a neighbor's field, And you don't have a threshing tool, but you simply pick a head of grain and you rub it together and you eat the you eat the grain. There's that's that's not a violation. It's not stealing. It's because we're a community, and so if you need if you need a a drink or if you need something to eat, come by the house. Maybe not today, but (laughs) but free we freely share with each other, don't we? I mentioned a need to our house fellowship on Wednesday night. A lady uh, that's a student at uh, Cornerstone Seminary at the Bible College, and she's had a horrible situation. Her husband was had a head-on collision, and he's in a home. He's totally blind. His brain's not functioning properly, and uh, she has to go over there continually to, from Clear Lake to Folsom, and her car's wearing out. And she had a mechanic look at it. He told her everything was fine. It, w- it was going to be fine, except she needs some front-end work done it's going to cost about six hundred dollars I, I i didn't say could you give could you share with her something to help her all i said was let's pray for her we prayed for her and then people started giving me money we've received a thousand dollars to help her for this situation why do people do that what's wrong with you well it is because God has so blessed us so, so abundantly that we want it to spill out in the lives of others. What, the, what Paul called it, what John Piper actually called it, uh, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 is, it's an overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Isn't that amazing? See, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of this resting community in Christ. And so it, in, under the law, it was legal for a person to walk through the field of his neighbor, pick some heads of grain, and eat some of it. He wouldn't, couldn't carry a threshing tool. Now, it's interesting in that Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You're telling me I've broken the Sabbath? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Son of Man is described for us in Daniel 7 as the king who's reigning over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's the one who established the Sabbath law. And you think that he cannot do good on the Sabbath because you've come up with stipulations? You see what the Pharisees did? They said this was reaping. This was labor. And so you're violating the the Sabbath law, the Sabbath day, if you do that. Why did they come up with such a law? Because they were holier than thou. They were so holy, they came up with restrictions that were, they came up with as many restrictions that they added to the law as there were commandments. There were over 600 commandments, they added over 600 stipulations. And Jesus loved to do this. He loved to get into their face. And so he tells the story of David. And what he's going to explain is that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What do you think he means by that? 
The Sabbath's a gift from God. It was a gift from God to his people in the Old Covenant. Work six days and rest the seventh. Rest. It was rest. It was trust. God's going to provide for us. He's going to bring the early rain and the latter rain. And all they were required to do was to live by faith in him. Now, in the next uh, section, verses 6 through 11, Jesus is the healer and life giver. And look at it again in, in verses uh, <clears throat> Verse 6 through 11, on, the, on another Sabbath day, a different Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And it says, the scribes and the Pharisees, because they saw this man who needed to be healed. And so the scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. They knew how to entrap Jesus. He was compassionate. And they assumed he's going to try to heal. He's, he's going to heal this guy. Amazingly, they knew he could heal. But faith, divorced from behavior, is not faith at all. Even though they believed he could heal, they didn't trust him. They didn't come to have faith in him. And it says they, they wanted to entrap him. They wanted to find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. He knows what you're thinking, too. He knows what I'm thinking. He knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and he came forward. And Jesus said to them, now he's speaking to the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? Well, anybody who knew the law knew it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If your ox fell into a ditch, it's okay to pull him out on the Sabbath. And so Jesus ends up healing this man. Verse 10 says, after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. That's an act of faith. He did so. He stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and began to discuss together how they might destroy him. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the unbelief? Do you see this hatred for faith in Christ that they have? Because if people put their faith in Christ, they were no longer going to be dependent upon the, the religious leaders of Israel. They would have direct access to the living God through Jesus Christ. What does God want you to do in light of this truth? It's real simple. He wants you to enter into his rest. If you've never entered into the rest of Christ, in Christ, if you've never believed in him, received what he has done for you, then enter into his rest. Believe on him. And you'll never have to labor for your salvation because he's done everything necessary to provide for what you for you what you cannot provide for yourself and as as believers he's calling us to cease striving and know that he is god <laughs> that's that's psalm 46 psalm 46 in psalm 46 in fact if you have an esv it says be still 
and know that I'm God. Rest in him. I I first uh, noticed this passage in like 1986 or so. I was awake at 3 a.m., and I was really troubled. I was Some things were going on. I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I read this passage. And I thought, I had this weird idea that this was the sovereign God speaking to my heart. I actually believed that God was speaking to me through this passage. And it gave me peace. <laughs> because I wasn't being still. I was so nervous. And I was so worried. I was going on five-mile walks every day to try to still my nerves. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I read that passage, and it was like God spoke to my heart. I don't want to scare you into thinking I'm some kind of mystic, but God spoke to me through this passage. You say, what did he say? He said, be still and know that I'm God. Now, what was I supposed to do? Be still and know that he's God, right? So what are you doing about the stuff that's worrying you? Have you entered into this rest this week? Cease striving and know that I'm God. The word uh, cease striving or be still, the Hebrew word is harpu. (laughs) And it means to relax. It means just to sink down and relax. In other words, you can rely completely upon Christ. I want to say this to you believers as well as anybody here who doesn't know Christ. Are you really abiding in Christ? Are you experiencing Sabbath rest in Christ? Do you have enough confidence in him that it doesn't matter what you face? I know some of us are so good at planning the future. I mean, we can, we, we got people in church that are incredible managers of life and they can figure everything out and they can think of all the possibilities and they can plan everything perfectly. But what if you make a mistake? Can you trust Christ in light of what you're going through right now? Can you rest in Christ? Can you believe what the Spirit's saying to your heart right now, that the Father loves you as his own child, and that you can trust him, and you can rely upon him? You can rely upon him to open your eyes to what you need to see when you don't see very well. But you can rest in him. You can just settle down and be at home in Christ. This is what he's called us to. This is what he wants us to do. That's how you became a Christian, and it's how you live the Christian life. There's a Trinitarian shape to this. We're told in the New Testament that the way we rest in Christ is this. We, we abide in Christ. We rely completely upon him. And then we present ourselves to the Father with confidence that I actually know that God wants to hear from me. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday that I haven't talked to in several years, and he's become really well-known. If I ever drop his name, people knew who I'm talking about. And I haven't talked to him for a long time. And he called me. And uh, he says, man, I've been thinking about you I think about you all the time. I said, really? I said, well, sometimes I drop your name to people so they'll think I'm important. And uh, it reminded me of this truth that, you know what? He's a friend of mine. I don't know what he is to everybody else, but he's just a close friend. And I know it wouldn't bug him if I called him. 
In fact, he gave me his phone number. He says, please don't give this number out. I said, okay. <laughs> but you see, you have a relationship with your father who loves you. And he sent the spirit of adoption into your heart to keep telling you that every day. Every day. He's, he's residing in you to tell you that the father loves you as his child. And he wants you to approach him. Like that's, that's really the word that's used in Romans chapter 6. Be, be, come into his presence. Present yourself to him. Be with him. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to do that because you're abiding in him. And then it says, in the, and walk in the Spirit. The Spirit's going to empower you to do whatever you need to do in obedience to the Father. Don't be afraid to go to the Father and say, Father, what would you have me do? Don't be afraid to do that because the Holy Spirit will empower you to do what the Father is calling you to do. And don't be afraid to take his word into your heart that he's speaking to you through his word. I've never heard a voice, but I've known that the Father's communicated me through his word. Haven't you, hasn't that happened to you? We're in the word, you're reading the scriptures and you think, wow, why did I never see that before? I read this passage a hundred times and it jumps out. Because God wants you to have full confidence in his love for you. The Son wants you to have full confidence in his work for you. And the Spirit wants you to have full confidence in his enabling ministry to you. He wants to use you. That's why he gave you, he gave you a spiritual gift. And not only that, he gives you spiritual power to live every day. Now, if you've never come to rest in Christ, you're really missing something. Resting in Christ, believing on Christ, coming to have this kind of relationship with him where he is your Sabbath rest and you can settle down and be at home in Christ and his work for you is the most blessed state of being there is. There's nothing like it. I can tell you that. There's nothing like it. So let me pray for you. Our Father, we bow now and ask you as our Father, as the one who sent your own Son into the world, and you said this is how much you loved us, that you would give your own Son for us while we were yet sinners. And now that we have been reconciled to you, and now that we have been justified, and now that we've been brought into relationship with you, Father, we thank you that we can have absolute confidence that you care about us, that you want to hear from us, that you love to hear our voice as we come to you and, and cry out, Abba, Father. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for manifesting it in so many clear ways in our daily lives. And thank you, Father, for calling us to draw close and to walk with confidence as we, as we rest in Jesus Christ. I pray for every, every person here, if, pray for every person who's never come to faith in Christ, that they would come today to know him. I pray for us as believers who've trusted in him, and yet there's times in our lives where we, we, we believe it intellectually, but we don't. It doesn't change our behavior. And we know that every, every church there is that exists is only two generations away from just being nominal Christians. So we pray, Father, that you would light a fire under us as your people, that you would draw us close to you, that we could walk by faith in Christ Jesus 
and experience the power of the Spirit to fulfill your will in our daily lives. We long to serve you. We long to be instruments in your hands to accomplish your good purpose in this world, Father. So call us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.